morning. Our reading for today is from uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Listen now to the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, Welcome. A couple of announcements before I begin. First is that this Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday service beginning at 8 o'clock. And I want you to know that we're going to have a special service this year. We are doing the seven last words of Christ service. And we'll have seven preachers uh, preaching on each of the seven words. Uh, Each of the sermons will be short. It's not going to be a 30-minute sermon each. Uh, So I want to invite you all to to come to that. I think it'll be just a really wonderful uh, meditation uh, upon the last Words, And, we, of course, we also have an uh, Easter dawn service here at 6 a.m., uh, after which uh, some of us will probably make another run to Bergen for breakfast, so I want to invite you to uh, that as well. And then a request from uh, Pastor Dohi for next Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter, and she has asked that you um, practice or you come prepared to celebrate. Uh, I know we're, we're Presbyterian, and we can be a little subdued. Um, but next week is Easter, and it's at least the one Sunday where we ought to be somewhat exuberant. And so next Sunday, we'll have uh, blowers like them. I don't know what they're called. They, you blow them, they make noise. Uh, we'll have maracas. And so, um, you know, the children are watching how you worship, how you celebrate. And so, uh, especially uh, for those of you who have children, um, 
and, but for all of us, next Sunday when we're worshiping together, um, during that time, I, I just would encourage you all to, uh, to let go a little bit and, and, and celebrate um, as we uh, worship together uh, Easter Sunday. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who are new to our church, we are going through the New City Catechism, a series of questions and answers, um, kind of reviewing uh, what we believe theologically. And so today we are on question 21. And by way of review, we want to go back to question 20. Let's see if I can get number 20 on the board. And um, if you haven't memorized the first 19, um, now is your chance to kind of start over. Uh, these are two short answers, so they're not too difficult to uh, remember. All right, let's begin. Question 20, who is the Redeemer? And today's question, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Okay, so that's, the, uh, that's what I want to try to tackle with you today, that this Redeemer that God himself has provided for us, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer, uh, who is and must be truly human and at the same time truly God. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, for this word. And Lord, it's, uh, it's a difficult idea for us to grasp, um, but we ask now that in the hearing of your word, we would, um, though we may not fully understand, uh, obviously, but God, would you help us to see what it might mean for us and why that's important for us and in our living um, and in our pursuit of you. And what it meant for you to take on our humanity. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's reading from John 1, the prologue to the gospel, is easily um, one of the most important passages uh, in the Bible. And you could even argue that it may be the, the most important chapter uh, in the entire Bible. Um, it makes not one, but two radical assertions about what it is that we believe. First is the assertion that in the beginning was the word. The word. This word, word, is a really important word. There's been probably more word studies done on the word word than any other word. It is a really uh, Big, big word. Um, in one of the dictionaries, there, it's like 60 pages long, the definition of word. And so I know you've heard this before, but just by way of review, I want to remind you that there are multiple ideas when people hear the word word in the Bible. So for the Greek audience, for the people who are thinking, who are primarily trained in Greek, the word for word is the logos, logos. And for Greek listeners, logos has the primary emphasis on reason. It's this ideal of the mind, the mind of God. And so in popular Greek philosophy, it's what keeps the universe from going into complete chaos. It's the, the mind of some sort of divinity that keeps the universe in order and in uh, working operation. Now, in English, 
we have primarily picked up on this idea of the meaning of the word. That is, our English words like logic or uh, biology or uh, dialogue, these kinds of words, they all point to this idea of understanding, this, this ideal of mind and reason, right? So biology is the study of life in a kind of a reasoned, in a logical kind of way. And that's how most of us have come to understand the logos. And for John's Greek listeners, this is the idea that they would have picked up. However, in the Hebrew mind, and I think John, as he's writing, this is what is in his mind. Right? He can't help himself. This is what he's thinking. So even though he's writing in Greek and he's talking about the logos, in his mind, in his heart, he's thinking about the idea of the word as the Jews understood the word. In Hebrew thought, this idea of the word is not so much the reason of God, the logic of God, but really it's more about the self-communication or the wisdom of God. The word of God is communicated through the prophets and through the law on Mount Sinai in Moses. It's through the word of God that God reveals himself and reveals his will to his people. And so the word or the word of God is this uh, communication more than it is simply this idea of just pure reason. And so the word of God is how God moves from God's eternal timelessness into our present reality. And so this word, when it comes to us, it's not just communication, it's not just wisdom, but it is also the power of God. The word of God has power. In the beginning, we are told that God spoke the world, the universe, into being. Let there be light, and there was light. Um, in seminary, my first year in seminary, I took Hebrew, and the, I think just about the first word that you learn in Hebrew class is this word for word. And in Hebrew, the word is dabar. Um, I was going to make a joke about, about it, but my daughter told me not to. So <laughs> dabar has this huge semantic field. It means, in my dictionary, it has three meanings. It can mean a thing, it can mean a matter, or it can mean a word. So dabar can mean a word that is spoken, or it can refer to some object, some thing, or it can refer to an event. That, that is a huge, huge Right? It's, it's very broad. And it's a very common word in the Hebrew Bible. It appears a lot. So, for example, whenever you see the word thing, as you're reading the Old Testament, that's probably this word dabar. So it can be something like, um, after these things, so-and-so went somewhere. After these things, meaning after these events, right? That's dabar. It can mean... Put away those unclean things, meaning these unclean objects, these unclean dabars. And then, and then the word of the Lord, of course, is the dabar of, of God, right? So it has this huge, huge, uh, very broad usage, this dabar, this, this word of God. And I think John, as he's, he's got all of these ideas in his mind, 
as he's writing about this. And so another way of thinking about the word of God, trying to kind of put all this together, is to say that what God says, that is the word, the speech of God, and what that word does, that is the thing or the events, are all the same. Right? In our minds, what we say, you know, the objects and events, they're all different. But the word itself is, is all of it, and in the mind of God, it's all the same. Right? And, and we do get a glimpse of this because we have words and we know the kind of power or the damage that words can have. Words that cause pain when we are bullied, for example. The pain that we feel when promises are not kept or broken. The inspiration we may experience, you know, when, when we are praised. Words can move us. I've told you before that the three most powerful words in the English language are, I love you, I'm sorry, and dinner's ready. <laughs> it's true. These are the three things that people want to hear more than any other word. Right? And when we hear that, it, it moves us. So, so words have that kind of power. In a much more fundamental and deeper way, God's word and his action are one and the same. Let there be light. And there is. There, there's no like, uh, there's no intermediary. There's no, you know, construction workers to come and build it. It's just what he says simply is. That's the word of God. No distinction between speech and action. The prophet Jeremiah says God's words are like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It is like rain that waters the earth making it sprout and accomplish what God has purposed, and it succeeds every time in that which God sends forth his word. And, you know, this is, this is why in the, in the Old Testament, um, especially in the Old Testament, where when someone speaks a word, you can't take it back. You can't just erase it, right? So, so for example, you know the story of Isaac and um, Jacob? Remember? Isaac is an old man, he's blind basically, and his son Jacob wants to take the blessing, remember? And so he disguises himself as his older brother Esau, he puts on like fake hair, right? And he comes into his blind dad, he you know, probably changes his voice and his dad touches him and he fools his dad into thinking that he's Esau. And so Isaac is fooled and he gives him the blessing, he gives him the blessing. Right? This word, you know, you're, just blesses him. Short time later, Esau comes, the real Esau. Isaac realizes he's been fooled. He's been deceived. He's been betrayed. And Esau says, Father, don't you have a word of blessing for me? Now you know the truth. Can't you bless me also? And Isaac says, no, I can't. Right? And you read that and you go, well, why not? Just say, you were tricked. Take back your words. Grab Jacob and say, I take back everything I said, you lousy son. Get out of my face. Everything I said, I take it back, and now I'm going to bless Esau instead. Why can't he do that? That's what he should have done, right? That's what we would do. He can't because once that word goes out, it, it has a reality. It's not just a word. You can't take them back. They have a concrete reality, and once spoken, that action becomes real. It cannot 
be simply erased because a spoken word and its action or event are all tied and bound together. And again, I think we, we have a glimpse of this as well. When someone that you love or that you look up to, you know, like a parent or a teacher or an older sibling, and, and they call you names or they insult you, it, it sticks. Even if they apologize for it later, even if they say they're sorry, it still lingers. Because it has that power. Even if they try to take it back, it still sticks. It has power over you. Sometimes for a very long time. It works the other way too, right? If someone says something very positive to you, someone that you look up praises you, and that can also have a tremendous impact, and that can stick in your own self-confidence and self-esteem. And so we can see, even with us, even with our words, that there is this kind of stickiness, that there is a kind of power that is associated with the word. Isaiah 55, God says, So shall my words be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed for which I sent it. It has power. Speech, event, object, they're all one in God. And this is the thing that ought to give us great confidence in God's word. They never fail. They can't. What God says and what happens, they cannot be in opposition. That's why we can trust everything that God has said to us is going to be reliable and trustworthy, and we can build our lives on it. And so John says, now this word, this word of God, verse 17 says, it is Jesus Christ. This word is Jesus Christ. The word that is present from the very beginning with God is the word itself. And this word participated in creation that nothing came into being without him. We memorized many months ago, what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. God is the creator of everyone and everything. And yet here we are told that in the beginning was the word, and it's the word that created everything. So how can that be? Well, the simplest explanation would be to say that the word and God are interchangeable synonyms, that the word is the same thing as God. And when we say the word, we're actually just talking about God. Now, that's fine because John says that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, that the word was God. Okay. But then it goes on to say, but the word was also with God. Not only is the word God, but the word is also with God. It's the same as God, and yet there's some sort of separate identity. And so it sounds like, well, then are there two gods? The word and, and God, the creator, but then the word is also the creator? Now that, that obviously goes against everything we know to be true. The Israelites, the Jews, have a radically monotheistic religion. Their fundamental proclamation is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is one. And yet John says, God, this, this word is God, and also separate from God. And so we're, we're just left with this paradox. It's something that we can't really explain, I think, beyond that. These seemingly contradictory and competing truths. That there is one God, 
but that there is also the Word, who is also God. And so in English and in other languages, we, we try to use this language of persons, that there are three persons in one God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, but it, it's, not, it's not perfect because when we talk about persons, we think of three, that's fine, but three persons doesn't give us an adequate sense of their unity, of their oneness. Right? But that's what we are left with. That's what we are left with. And so the, the witness of Scripture, if we're going to trust the Scriptures, this is what we are left with. That there is only one God, but that the Word is also God. And the Scriptures are absolutely clear about this. We, we cannot move away from this. For many, many centuries, and even today, people have tried to somehow make the word Jesus Christ, you know, little lower than God, right? That somehow God is a, Jesus is like a superhuman or a demigod or or something along those lines. But if we're going to trust the witness of the scriptures and the church, we cannot go in that direction. In addition to the kinds of attributes that only God can have, right? The power to forgive sins the power to create the universe, and so on. The Bible says that Jesus is God very, very clearly. Titus 2.13, for example, says that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Thomas saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, he exclaimed, my Lord and my God, to Jesus. In Hebrew, God himself says, but of the Son... He says, your throne, O God. God addresses the Son as, O God, is forever and forever. This belief that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is co-eternal with God the Father, the only unique Son of God, is not some idea or legend that grew up in the church as the centuries passed. It's been there from the very beginning. It's in the words of Christ, and it's the very earliest thing that was taught and preached. Uh, The historian Yaroslav Pelikan points out that the oldest Christian sermon, the oldest account of a Christian martyr, the oldest pagan report of the church, the oldest liturgical prayers that we have, all refer to Jesus Christ as the Lord and God. He concludes, clearly it was the message of what the church believed and taught that God was an appropriate name for Jesus Christ from the very, very beginning. And so this is the first radical assertion that God is one, but, but that the word is God, and yet the word is separate from God. And so we hear we hear the beginnings here of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, that's the first radical assertion. Now, that would be enough for, you know, one chapter. But we get now to the second radical assertion. We get that this co-eternal word, the mind of God, the speech of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the logos of God became flesh. He became a human being and dwelt among us. Now, how this happens, how God becomes a human being has been and is an ongoing debate, and I'm not going to be able to solve it for you here today. But I do remember my first year in seminary again, uh, it's amazing the kind of discussions we said. We try to figure out in, in one of our classes, uh, because we had to read, um, I think it was, uh, it was a booklet, a little pamphlet or booklet by uh, Anselm about why God became man. And we had to try to come up with an analogy of how 
in the one person, you have the two natures of Christ, fully divine and fully human. This is the orthodox understanding that in Jesus Christ, in the one person, there is the full humanity and full divinity. And so we're trying to figure out, like, how does that happen? And so one of my classmates proposed the idea of um, a cup of lemonade, right? So the cup would be the body. The lemonade would be the uh, human uh, parts of the, like, emotions and spirit. And then the ice cubes would be, like, the mind or the logos of God. So you have the logos of God in this one cup of lemonade, like, one-third divine and two-thirds human. That's one way of, like, trying to think about how you can have this mixture. Well, we know that that's, that's wrong, right? You can't have just a two-thirds Christian. Uh, someone else then suggested, no, it's more like if you, what if you mix, like, chocolate syrup with milk? You stir the chocolate milk in, and the whole thing gets changed into chocolate milk, right? That you're taking God's divine nature God and uh, Jesus' human nature, and you mix them, and it becomes this, this hybrid, this one new thing. And again, no, that, that's, that's not right. Because, again, we confess that they are not mixed, that they are distinct and separate. One does not get somehow absorbed uh, by the other. And then someone suggested, how about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Right? Now they're separate, but they make one sandwich. Um, again, it's not bad, but because you have that distinction, but now you only have like half divine and half human. Um, I don't know. Uh, years later, I, you know, someone else I think uh, mentioned, but maybe it's more like our sort of um, identity, like our hyphenated identities when we talk about, uh, you know, Korean American or Italian American or, you know, that maybe it's these kind of two different identities that are in the one person. Now, are you fully both somehow? Like, I, I don't know. Do they get mixed? Is there some sort of a hybrid? Um, I can't explain it to you. Like the doctrine of the Trinity, we're just kind of left with this paradox, this confession that we have to make based on the testimony that we are given that God is fully present in Jesus Christ. There is no sort of partial godness. And Jesus Christ is fully human, just as you and I are in every sense. Colossians 2.9 says that in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the deity, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And so we have to accept that. He became truly human, but somehow the fullness of the divinity is also present. And by faith, by faith, we make this confession. And so this is what we call the incarnation, that Jesus Christ became incarnated in flesh, in human being, flesh, and this is really the gospel, the eternal word of God, the eternal, unchanging, timeless word of God somehow took on flesh and entered into our reality. Now, for Jews and Greeks, this would have been a ridiculous idea for Greeks, right, the, the whole idea was to get away from the flesh, to rise up to the higher levels of spirit, to, to get, you know, this, is, this was prison, the body. Why would God take on flesh, this, this weak, vulnerable, temporary 
thing that you're just trying to get away from. Uh, one theologian called this th- uh, doctrine, uh, this very theological term, called it cuckoo. Right? That you, it doesn't make sense that you would do this. How can the eternal word take on decaying flesh? How can that happen? And you would think that John would have, might have even gone with, instead of saying flesh, he could have said the word of God became a human being. But he said it became flesh, right? It's just, it's just even cruder, this idea of um, weakness. I think we have the same problem today, although the language is a little bit different. People are willing to accept the ideal of God uh, as a kind of a generic principle, as some sort of a benign, divine sort of thing. People are also willing to accept Jesus as some sort of a teacher, the golden rule, let's be nice to each other. Um, But the idea that Jesus is God fully human yet fully divine and that he's to be worshipped now now people get no that's we don't want to go there but that's that's the proclamation that we make that's the confession that we make that Jesus Christ the word the eternal word of God became flesh for us let me just make one uh, reflection with you about this today um as I said, I can't really explain what that means, um, you know. But the eternal word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the NRSV translates it, this, the last part there, the phrase, became flesh and lived among us. But the verb to live or to dwell literally means to pitch a tent. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us or took up residence with us. Or as Eugene Peterson translates it, he moved into the neighborhood. He took on flesh, became flesh, and moved into our neighborhood. To pitch a tent, it echoes the idea of the tabernacle in the wilderness in the wanderings. The tabernacle was a temporary dwelling place of God. It was at the center of the camp of Israel as they were wandering. It's where the law of God, the Ten Commandments, were being preserved. It's the place where God would speak to Moses, to the people, where God's revelation, the word of God, would be spoken. It's where the sacrifices were made. It was where the people worshipped God. And now all of that has been recentered around the person of Jesus Christ. He's a new tabernacle, the new temple of God, the new center of worship, and he is tabernacling, he's pitching his tent among us. One of the, the great American novels and personal favorite of mine is To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and you know, in it, uh, At- Atticus Finch, um, the, the wise father, tells his daughter, Scout, this, this memorable quote. He says, if you can learn a simple trick, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. Here's the secret. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Right? That's, that's good advice. You never really understand a person 
until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. You know, there's a, there's a proverb that says you should walk around, you should walk a mile in another person's shoes before you make a judgment about them. That to, to have empathy for someone, to put yourself in their shoes for a little while. But Atticus Finch goes further. He says that you have to climb into someone's skin and walk around in it. And that is precisely what Jesus did. He became fully human. It was real flesh. His genuine humanity tells me that he had to go through everything in a real way that you and I have to go through. It wasn't just pretend. It was real. He had to learn to spell the word dabar, just like we had to learn. He made mistakes in math class. I'm sure of it. He made chairs with his dad, and I'm sure at least once, he smashed his thumb with a hammer and screamed in pain. I bet as he was sanding some of that furniture, he got some splinters in his fingers and cried. Maybe the first time he heard thunder at night, he got scared and ran to his mother. He probably argued with his siblings, probably ran around and scraped his knees. He got angry, we know that. He got thirsty, we know that. He got so tired from doing ministry, he fell asleep in the middle of a storm. He cries at a funeral. I'm sure at times he was tempted to steal food when he was hungry. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that in every respect he was tempted as we are, but was without sin. He did not sin, but he had to grow in favor with God and with men and women and all of the world just like you and me. The humanity of Jesus, when Jesus became one of us, it's not like he just slipped into a pair of shoes that he's walked around for a little bit. It's not like he, he got into like a Halloween costume that he could just kind of take off. He became real flesh, a real human being in every possible way, just like you and me. Gregory of Nazianzus, a fourth century theologian, said this, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. That which is not assumed is not redeemed. In other words, unless a real human being died on the cross, real human beings cannot be redeemed. He had to be fully human so that every aspect of our humanity, including our bodies, could be redeemed. If it was only the mind, the logos, that was taken over somehow, like you know, some invasion of the body snatchers or something, then the mind might get redeemed, but the body will not get redeemed. Fully human to fully redeem us. Every aspect of our being. We cannot compromise in the slightest the full humanity of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the spirit of God. 
every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He has come in the flesh. Emily Towns, a seminary professor, says that being in ministries, being in ministry means being more than just a tourist. Tourists come to visit a place while they maintain their own unique traditions and customs. They buy trinkets, they take snapshots, and then they leave. The pastors need to pitch their tent with the people. And it's not just pastors. This is a call that everyone who is in Christ has to pitch our tents with the people with whom God has entrusted us. Because that's what Jesus did. He wasn't different in that regard. He was different in that he did not sin. But he was fully there in full humanity. And that's what we are called to do. And you know, the beginning of the year, I mentioned and have asked you to do these uh, BLTs, the Bob and Larry times. Again, I apologize for the name. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a small step. It's a small first step toward this, to be present in each other's lives in a very tangible, physical, full presence that Jesus was present for us. It means for us that this logos, this word of God, the eternal word of God, is not just some, some figment of imagination. It's not some philosophical ideas that theologians have you know, kind of speculated and have, have come up with. Um, it's not just a, like, a, like a mystical vision of a few super Christians or anything like that. The logos of God is a person. It's a historically concrete and real human being. And he became flesh so that he can be known and so that we can know him. That's the invitation, to be known in a real way. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side. See, the only God. He has made him known. Jesus has made him known. John will write later in John, Jesus will say later in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is our ongoing task, to know God. To know in a relational way, the way you would know a real person. That's why he became flesh. That he could be known in a real way. Not in some abstract way, to know God in some, some abstract sense, in theory. But to know in the sense that you know a human being. Well, how do we do that? This is as simple as, as I can put it. There's only one way to know God. There's only one way. And that's to know Jesus. That's, that's, as simple as, that's as simple as I can put it. God wants to be known. And the only way to know Jesus, the only way to know God is through Jesus. That's the good news. And here's the good news for us. Jesus says, but to all who receive him, what John says, but to all who receive him, that is the word of God, Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. That's it. If you know this name, you have eternal life. You can become the children of God by believing in his name. There's no catch to this. 
There really isn't. You have to believe. Maybe a semi-catch. To believe isn't simply to give mental assent. It doesn't simply mean to like acknowledge something is true. It, it requires action on our part in this, in this sense. Right? Because to learn about Jesus is pretty easy. Right? You can read the Bible. You can read Wikipedia about the Bible or Jesus. Um, you can listen to a couple of sermons. You can learn about who Jesus is as a person. That, that's not hard. You could even take that to the next step, and you can get to a point where you can even agree that that stuff is, is true. That's still not belief, right? Like, I can, I can read all about how diet and exercise is good for my health. And I've gotten to the point where I know that that's true, right? Not only do I, have I learned about it, like, I know in my brain, like, I know that if I eat more vegetables and exercise, that that is good for my health. Like, I, I know that. I know that. I'm in total agreement with the science that tells me that. But it still does me no good. I don't really believe, right? Because there's one more step, right? I have to eat more vegetables and exercise. That's the proof. That's the demonstration that I really believe. And it's in that sense we have to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not simply that we're learning about some facts. It's not even that, that we agree that, yeah, Jesus is the son of God and he's also fully human and fully, like, it's, that's not enough. That's not belief. That's not faith. It's that next step. How does that now impact the way you engage with others, the way you live your life, the way you Talk about yourself and think about yourself. And God will give you the power to do that because we've been born by the will of God. It is a gift. Just as a child does not choose his parents, we are born not based on our decisions, but on the free love decision of God. So if you, if you know that, if you know that, then it's going to change your life. Can you trust that word? Can you trust this eternal word to shape your life? Can you really believe that you have been forgiven, that you have been redeemed? Can you really trust this word and work out this this truth that in Christ you are forgiven and have eternal life so that now you can begin to live your life, not, not for your own salvation, that's been taken care of, but live now for the sake of others. That's why God gave us a redeemer. To do what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus and Jesus alone can bring us back to God. And that's the one word that we have to believe. Let's pray together. Lord, it's... Uh, <clears throat> I, I know it's beyond... Um, our comprehension to make logical sense of all of this. Um, But we want to trust your word. And we see that what seems difficult for us is somehow simple for you. And God, that you chose 
to enter into our world and to take on our humanity in its fullness. And that you call us now to enter into the lives of others in the same way. God, help us to trust your word, to know that you have made possible our redemption. And confident of that word, the word, the eternal word that never changes, the word that does what it says, to really believe that word and live accordingly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.